and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 166, The Maelstrom, part 4. Now at last, all the pieces are in place, and it's time for the Russo-Japanese War to get off the ground. By 1904, that was the general feeling in the Japanese military establishment. Japan was as ready for war as it could be, and it was now left to the leadership to determine if it was time to throw the dice. In early February, the Meiji leadership met in an imperial conference, a formal gathering of government ministers which took place in the presence of the Meiji emperor, and whose determinations were in essence sanctified by the emperor's attendance. Despite the emperor's role in legitimating the proceedings, Meiji himself was not a decision maker when it came to war. And this gets back to the sticky issue of the Emperor's role in government prior to World War II. He was expected to reign, but not to rule directly, because if the Emperor makes a dumb decision, nobody can really tell him no. So instead, the Emperor restricted himself to a ceremonial role, justifying the proceedings by asking his advisors if there was truly no hope for peace. Meiji then read a poem lamenting the cost of war, quote, I believe that every sea to every other is bound together as a brother. Why is it now the seas must rise to strike each other with angry cries? He asked his advisors one final time if there was no hope for peace. Led by the sitting prime minister, Katsura Taro, a protege of Yamagata Aritomo and a backer of the war, the ministers responded no, there was no hope for peace. And so the emperor gave his sanction to a decision that was not really his. As a bit of an aside, 36 years later, Meiji's grandson, Emperor Showa, or Hirohito if you prefer, would read the same poem in an imperial conference, and would ask his ministers if nothing could be done to avoid war. On that occasion, the emperor's ministers were a little more equivocal, but eventually they would come to the same decision, that war was inevitable. Thus, Hirohito would ultimately sanction the decision to attack the United States. So that was it. War's on, let's get this bad boy rolling, but how is Japan going to achieve the strategic objectives we discussed last time? Like we talked about, the naval general staff chief, Ito Sukeyuki, came to a determination that a surprise attack was the best possible way to catch the Russians off guard. When that plan was presented to the ministers of the Japanese government, they agreed with Admiral Ito's determination. Placed in charge of the attack was 56-year-old Togo Heihachiro, at the time commander of Japan's combined fleet. Togo began his life as a samurai in Satsuma Domain, the same domain that was home to Saigo Takamori and Okubo Toshimichi. As a young man, his interest in naval affairs was sparked by his experiences in 1863. If you've got a particularly good memory, you might recall from the Fall of the Samurai series that in that year, the British attacked Kagoshima, the capital of Satsuma, in revenge for the death of a British merchant at the hands of a Satsuma samurai. When Satsuma refused to pay an indemnity and hand over the killers of the British citizen, the Royal Navy was dispatched to show the natives what for. Togo was in Kagoshima, the capital of Satsuma, when the British arrived and their fleet burned huge swaths of the city. The up-close and personal demonstration of British naval power was, shall we say, a formative experience. 
the next year Satsuma began building its own navy, with British assistance, as it happened, and Togo Heihachiro was one of the first to join up. After the end of the Boshin War, Togo joined the fledgling Imperial Navy. He would spend some time studying in London, where he developed a reputation as a hothead, getting into many fights with his British colleagues who, shall we say, displayed a lack of cultural or ethnic sensitivity towards their Japanese colleague. Apparently, his nickname at school was Johnny Chinaman, and whenever Togo heard it, he would fly into a rage and would often punch the offending man. Upon his return to Japan, Togo curbed his anger problems, apparently, and swiftly climbed the ranks. He distinguished himself as a ship's captain during the Sino-Japanese War, and was rewarded for his performance with promotion to the Admiralty, and eventually command of the Combined Fleet. It was to Togo that responsibility for the opening shot of the war, the surprise attack on Port Arthur, fell. Remember that the Japanese needed the seas clear of Russian warships in order to ferry troops to land in Manchuria. Otherwise, the troop transports would have to take the long way, landing in southern Korea and then marching north. The Russian commander in Port Arthur, Admiral Stark, was probably smart enough to figure this out as well, and would likely leave port as soon as war was declared to start raiding Japanese troop convoys. So the Japanese had to get Stark while he was in port, and of course, the easiest way to do that is to hit the fleet before the war starts. At midnight on February 8, 1904, a Japanese fleet under Admiral Togo, which had left port two days earlier, arrived in the waters outside Port Arthur. The Japanese picket ships came into contact with Russian patrols almost immediately, and the Russians started hightailing it for the port to raise the alarm. However, in their haste, some of the Russian patrol ships actually ended up ramming each other, slowing them down and giving the Japanese time to get into position. The Japanese opened things up with one of the newest and scariest weapons of the 20th century, the torpedo. Unlike older ships' guns, torpedoes fired from below a ship's waterline could theoretically disable a vessel of any size with a single shot by blowing a hole in its hull. Torpedoes are also dirt cheap, and it only takes one to disable a hugely expensive battleship or battlecruiser. However, the torpedo did not live up to its fearsome reputation on February 8, 1904. Sixteen torpedoes were fired by the Japanese at the Russians, but only three hit their targets. The others missed or were caught in special torpedo nets set up in the harbor. Essentially, these are just thick nets designed to physically block the torpedoes. However, luck was with the Japanese for three reasons. First, the British had helped clear the way for them in the guise of one of the most interesting and really least understood figures of the 20th century, Sidney Riley. Riley was a spy for Britain's Special Intelligence Bureau, and among other things, he's the person that the figure of James Bond is actually based off of. His career was fascinating, and it's really worth reading about, but we don't really have time for it. So, I'll just say that Riley was apparently in Port Arthur keeping an eye on things for His Majesty's government, and just so happened to obtain the defense plans for the harbor, which he then passed on to the Japanese. With those plans in hand, the Japanese were able to get way closer with their torpedo boats than they otherwise would have been. Second, as luck would have it, 
In Port Arthur, Admiral Stark was spending the evening of February 8th celebrating his wife's birthday. Thus, when Japanese and Russian ships started firing at each other, Stark and the other Russian officers initially misinterpreted what was going on. They thought the ships were firing salutes in honor of the Admiral's wife. Third, those three torpedoes that did hit? Well, they hit the three most valuable ships in the Russian fleet. The Retvizan, the Palladia, and the crown jewel of the Russian Pacific Fleet, the battleship Tsarevich. All three were put out of commission, and without them the Russian fleet was mostly a combination of lighter ships that stood very little chance against heavily armed and armored Japanese battleships. So the Russian Pacific Fleet was not gone, but it was contained, and that was enough for the Japanese. The Russian fleet would attempt to break out of Port Arthur in subsequent days, and the Japanese would nearly blow the whole damn thing when one of the fleet admirals sailed way too close to the harbor defenses and almost got his ships blown to hell. But in the end, the plan more or less worked. In an opening surprise attack, Admiral Togo was able to disable enough Russian ships for landing operations to begin. However, because Japanese victory was not as clear-cut as might have been hoped, because there were still Russian ships left, Togo did not immediately radio back an all-clear to Tokyo, and it would actually not be until May that Togo gave the go-ahead for unrestricted Japanese landings in Manchuria to begin. Before May, troop transports had to be escorted, which really slowed down the pace of Japanese landings. After May, constant Russian attempts to break free of the Japanese blockade wore down the Russian fleet to the point where they weren't as much of a threat. Three hours after the initial attack, and long before news would reach St. Petersburg in the age of the telegraph, the Japanese ambassador to Russia handed the court of the Tsar a declaration of war. Shortly thereafter, the Japanese government announced the decision for war to its own people, and in the declaration, the government laid out the case for war with Russia. Quote, since the possession of Manchuria by Russia would render it impossible to maintain the integrity of Korea and, in addition, compel the abandonment of all hope for peace in the Far East, we expected, in these circumstances, to settle the question by negotiations and secure a permanent peace thereby. With this object in view, our officials, by our order, made proposals to Russia, and frequent conferences were held during the last half-year. Russia, however never met such proposals with the spirit of conciliation, but by her prolonged delays put off the settlement of the pending question, and by ostensibly advocating peace on the one hand, and on the other secretly extending her naval and military preparations, sought to bring about our acquiescence. It is not possible in the least to admit that Russia had a sincere desire for peace. She has rejected the proposals of our empire, the safety of Korea is in danger, the interests of the empire are menaced. At this crisis, the guarantees for the future which the empire has sought to secure by peaceful negotiations can now only be sought by an appeal to arms. End quote. The Russians would eventually respond with their own declaration of war against Japan, not that doing so was really necessary, but it gave the Russian government a chance to make a countercase. Quote, Eight days have now elapsed since all Russia was shaken with profound indignation against an enemy who suddenly broke off negotiations and, by a treacherous attack, endeavored to obtain easy success in a war they have long desired. 
The Russian nation, with natural impatience, desires prompt vengeance, and feverishly waits for news from the Far East. The unity and strength of the Russian people leave no room for doubt that Japan will receive the chastisement she deserves for her treachery and provocation of war at a time when our beloved sovereign desired to maintain peace among all nations. Russia must await the events in patience, being sure that our army will avenge that provocation a hundredfold. Operations on land must not be expected for some time yet, and we cannot obtain early news from the theater of war. The useless shedding of blood is unworthy of the greatness and power of Russia. Our country displays such unity and desire for self-sacrifice on behalf of the national cause that all true news from the scene of hostilities will be immediately due to the entire nation. End quote. Note the reference to patience, that Russia would have to bide its time to be avenged. This, I think, is pretty telling. The trains full of soldiers headed east were already rolling out by the time the declaration of war went out. However, the Russian commander in the east, Alexei Kropotkin, estimated that it would take around six months to muster enough forces to fight the Japanese on even terms. Until then, he expected to be badly outgunned. Kropotkin, by the way... Interesting guy. He was from the landed Russian aristocracy and had joined up with the Tsar's military in the 1860s. He was one of the Tsar's longest-serving generals with experience of Asia, and had actually been a part of a diplomatic mission to Uyghur Muslim rebels in the 1870s who were trying to break free of China. He was also a military reformist. In the 1890s, as Russia's war minister... He had expanded both the length and frequency of the officer training curriculum and forced his irritated subordinates to constantly work on extra maneuvers to train officers with. Unfortunately, he ran into some barriers with this reformist streak, and here's where we foreshadow some problems for the armies of Russia. Kropotkin, you see, was constantly short on funds to support expanded officer training, not to mention other initiatives such as better pay for serving recruits. But wait, I hear you saying, what about all those sweet, sweet French loans? Surely those are enough to cover the costs of this project, and yeah, they certainly were. But that was not what the Russians were spending their money on. With French encouragement, most of the money was going to infrastructure improvements like railroads or equipment upgrades, newer rifles and artillery, not to less immediately visible areas, like officer training. In time, the Russian leadership would come to rue that decision. Kropotkin was actually involved in the negotiations between Russia and Japan in the lead-up to war, and strenuously supported an accommodation with Japan along the lines proposed by Ito Hirabumi, a clean division of spheres of interest between Japanese Korea and Russian Manchuria. Kropotkin was convinced, correctly as it turned out, that the Japanese were more of a danger to Russian ambitions in the East than they seemed. However, his objections, as we've seen, fell upon deaf ears. And then, to add insult to injury, Kropotkin was given the task of directing a war he'd argued against. So we've discussed how Japan was planning for the war, but what about Kropotkin? What was he thinking? Well, he correctly deduced the essence of Japanese strategy. Obviously, in any contest of attrition, the Russians would win. To put it callously, they just had more people to spare. 
The Japanese might have been only a few decades removed from running around in armor with swords, but they can still do math. They would know that in a long war they would be at a disadvantage. So obviously they would try to make the war as short as they could by launching a swift attack on Russian positions and driving the Russians out of Manchuria before reinforcements could arrive. So Kuropotkin figured the smart thing to do was to play for as much time as possible. By fighting delaying actions, wasting time, and inflicting losses on the Japanese wherever possible, but avoiding pitched battles and preserving his forces, Kropotkin figured that when reinforcements did arrive, he would be able to confront the Japanese with overwhelming force. Now, I'm not a general or military expert. I've read a decent amount of military history, but it's not a lifelong specialty for me like it is for some. That said, my read is that in a vacuum, this is not a terrible strategy. Kropotkin was, if nothing else, consciously trying to minimize the weakness of his position while playing to his greatest strength. However, Kropotkin had one big problem in implementing the strategy, the attitude of the Russian officer corps. The first decade of the 20th century was a time when the shadow of one general in particular loomed very large, everybody's favorite megalomaniacal Corsican, Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon's tactical and strategic thinking was built around rapid offensives designed to seize the initiative from his enemies. Rarely, if ever, did Napoleon defend against an attack rather than initiating one himself. For the next century, officers in pretty much every Western military around the world tried to imitate that style, and it became an article of faith among most military officers that going on the offense was always better than staying on the defense. This attitude is sometimes described with the name the cult of the offensive, the use of the word cult referring to the fervency with which some embraced the idea of offensive warfare. This is part of what's going to help massively ramp up the death tolls in World War I, because officers on both sides of the conflict believed it was better to proactively feed troops into the meat grinder than just reactively wait to be attacked. Kropotkin's officers had all been trained to share this belief, so when he came to them with a plan that involved no offensives and hinged on retreating from the enemy, well, they were not pleased at all. Of course, there was not much they could do about it at the moment. Kropotkin, like it or not, was the man in charge. But if things started to go bad, well, it was pretty likely that Kropotkin would take the lion's share of the blame for implementing such a passive strategy. Meanwhile, back in Japan, the half-success of the Port Arthur attack meant that the timetable for the army was already starting to be pushed back. Since the Russian fleet was not entirely secured until May, the first Japanese landings took place in Korea, not Manchuria. Indeed, after the surprise attack, Tsar Nicholas sacked Admiral Stark and replaced him with the far more competent Stepan Makarov. Makarov aggressively attempted to block Japanese landings, launching daily breakout attempts and raids on the Japanese fleet in order to maintain the threat that any troop landers could be sunk by a Russian attack. This is why, for example, Japanese troop landers had to be escorted by Japanese warships for months. Makarov's aggressive stance slowed Japanese landings down for a long time. However, in early May, his flagship, the Petropavlovsk, 
struck a Japanese mine and sank in the harbor while returning from one of those aggressive attacks. Makarov went down with the ship, having bought Russia all of three months with his aggressive style. However, with Makarov roaming the high seas for the first three months, Japanese troops landed in the vicinity of central Korea and then hoofed it north. They would not come toe-to-toe with the Russians until April, when the first ground battle of the war took place. That was the fight to control the Manchurian-Korean border. Those two regions are divided by the Yalu River, and the Russians staked out positions on the far bank waiting for the Japanese to come. When the Japanese got onto the scene, their commander, General Kuroki Tamemoto, swiftly assessed the situation, and determined it to be very much in his favor. The Russian troops outnumbered the Japanese, 42,000 to 25,000, and they were dug in and entrenched. However, the Russians had a serious disadvantage because they had no idea where the Japanese were planning to cross the Yalu River. As a result, that large Russian force was spread out over most of the border region, really diluting its strength. If the Japanese could concentrate all their forces on a single spot, without the Russians figuring out what they were planning, they should be able to break through no problem. Kuroki accomplished this with a skillful feint, ordering a detachment of troops to fake preparations for a crossing right at the mouth of the river. The Russian commander, no doubt thinking himself quite clever, dutifully concentrated the majority of his troops at that very spot, and even sent a telegram all the way back to St. Petersburg to the effect that he had those rascally Japanese figured and would stop the enemy right at the border, so feel free to start picking some new medals to pin on my chest, please. At which point, the Japanese main force crossed at points farther north. The few Russian defenders that remained in place there were smashed by overwhelming Japanese numbers and artillery, and just like that, Japanese ground troops were entering Manchuria. The Russian commander made things worse for himself by doing something that many of his compatriots would do later in the war as well. He ignored orders from General Kropotkin, which were to begin phased retreats away from the Japanese if they successfully crossed the river. Instead, the Russian commander attempted to hold his position and even ordered a counterattack on the Japanese. That counterattack was smashed, and the Russian commander was finally forced to order a withdrawal. The Battle of the Yalu, as it came to be known, was Japan's first victory in the field over Russia, but as victories go, it was not particularly ringing. Japan held the field, but between the dead, wounded, and missing, it lost more people in that first engagement, just around 2,000, than it had during the entire war with China ten years earlier. Which sets up another theme of the coming weeks, Japan's war with Russia would be far and away its bloodiest conflict ever, right up until the 1930s when the war with China will surpass it. The Battle of the Yalu will also set the tone for the war because the Russians were able to successfully withdraw from the field with the majority of their forces intact. Russian casualties were serious, they lost about 1,600 men at a time when they really couldn't spare anybody, but still, the Russian army deployed along the Yalu was intact. The other major ground action of the early months of the war took place right next to Port Arthur. The port and the city of Dalian are more or less on the tip of the Yadong Peninsula, which juts out of Manchuria to the west of Korea. 
After Togo's half-victory and his surprise attack on the port, the army leadership dithered for a bit before General Oyama Iwao, who was the chief of the army general staff and became the general commander of Japanese ground troops in Manchuria, ordered troops to begin landing on the Liaodong Peninsula to push on Port Arthur. Now this was pretty dangerous. The Russian fleet was penned up but not eliminated, and theoretically could try and break out of the Japanese blockade and attack the landing craft. If that happened and the Japanese lost some troop ships, well, the thousands of resulting casualties would be very difficult to replace and would really slow the war effort down. On the other hand, Oyama argued that the only way to remove the threat of the Russian fleet was to seize Port Arthur itself. If the Japanese could take the city, the Russian fleet would have to flee, its provisions would be cut off, and Japanese ground artillery could start shelling it. The Russian Pacific Fleet would have to either surrender or make a suicide run to try and break through the Japanese blockade, round Korea, and escape to safe harbor in Vladivostok. Oyama won out with his plan to launch an attack. Landings began on March 24, 1904. Here Oyama was tremendously lucky. The Russian viceroy in Port Arthur had been recalled back to Moscow after the surprise attack to answer to the Tsar for what had happened, leaving General Anatoly Stosil in charge of the city's land defenses. Admiral Wilhelm Witgeft was in charge of the fleet, with the death of Admiral Makarov. Witgeft was an indecisive man who did not want to risk his fleet in an attack that could work, yes, but might also leave his entire fleet at the bottom of the bay, and more importantly, leave him accountable to the Tsar for the loss of the entire Russian Pacific fleet. So he did not set his fleet on the landing Japanese, who were able to reach solid ground safely. Now, the Russian position was still not terrible. The Russians had operated under the assumption that Port Arthur would be subject to a land attack, and had spent 1903 fortifying Nanshan Hill a large hill which lay between the nearest beach suitable for a large-scale landing and the port, and which commanded a narrow spit of land the Japanese had to cross to get to Port Arthur. The Japanese had spent the year setting up defensive trenches and, in a foreshadowing of World War I, barbed wire. They were dug in with artillery pieces, facing the oncoming Japanese assault. Now, the Japanese were familiar with the defensive layout of Nanshan because Japanese spies had infiltrated, hired to build the fortification works. However, knowledge of the defensive layout did little to aid the Japanese assault. The Japanese commander on the scene decided on a textbook strategy for assaulting a fortified hill, or at least textbook for pre-World War I militaries. He launched his troops in an assault on three sides against the hill, hoping to break through wherever defenses proved the weakest by then committing his reserves. Instead, the Japanese troops were slaughtered. The Russians were outnumbered literally almost 10 to 1, 3,800 to 35,000, but they had long-range artillery, machine guns, and rifles, which tore through the Japanese attackers. In the end, the Russians were forced to abandon Nanshan, but not because of the attack, because of a mistake. The Russian commander on the hill panicked when the Japanese attack came from the direction of the sea, because he thought the Japanese were landing troops behind him and that his line of retreat back to Port Arthur was about to be cut off. In a panic, he ordered his troops to retreat, 
and to blow ammunition and supply depots on the mountaintop up to keep the Japanese from taking them. The vast majority of Russian casualties in the Battle of Nanshan, around 1500 or so, took place when the Russian forces abandoned the hill in a panicked flight brought about by this misreading of the situation. No such Japanese landing was taking place. Still, the Japanese had little reason to celebrate. Taking Nanshan Hill, just the first step to taking Port Arthur, had cost them over 6,000 killed and wounded in the space of a single day. Next week, we'll continue the story of the Russo-Japanese War on two fronts, first the Battle of Port Arthur, and then the advance north as hapless Alexei Kuropotkin will come into contact with Japanese forces for the first time. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks to Luka Perechnik for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for The Maelstrom, Part 5.